Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Uh, Hey, we have been in a series for the last couple of weeks entitled Personal Exodus, Lessons from the Wilderness. How many of you enjoyed this series so far? I'm really enjoying it. Uh, And uh, there's been some great content thus far, but if you're new with us today, I wanna catch you up to speed and also invite you as uh, we go through the next couple of weeks in this series to open up your Bible, second book, the book of Exodus, and take a slow read through that story. It's an incredible journey, an incredible story of God's faithfulness, his deliverance, his provision. There's some amazing miracles in there. And I think it'd be really cool for you to get the whole picture because we'll never get to see that um, on a Sunday morning. But just for the sake of catching everybody up to speed, we've been talking about the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, a season in the wilderness, and then their entrance into the promised land of Canaan. And we've been drawing a lot of parallels, talking about the fact that just as the Israelite people exited this place of bondage and slavery and oppression, the place of their past, and entered into a place of provision, a place of freedom, a place that God had for their future, there was a wilderness between those two cities. And just as there was a wilderness between those two cities, there is a wilderness that all of us must wander well in our lives between our past and between what God has for us. And we've been taking a look at a lot of the failures that took place in the Israelites' journey because we like to say this every week. I don't want to make my own failures if I can learn from somebody else's. I don't want to make my own mistakes if I can learn from somebody else's. I want to know that if someone else failed in this area before, I can actually learn from that and avoid the same pitfalls. How how many of you would say that you like to learn from other people's failures? All right. Yeah. Um, Anyone ever watch those fails clips on like YouTube or on Instagram and uh, the first service was uh, an older demographic, so they had no idea what I was talking about. For, for y'all, you know what I'm talking about, right? You know those, those like Instagram accounts where you get to watch people make a fool of themselves, and you feel a little bit guilty watching it, but also justified at the same time. Like, yeah, you deserve that, absolutely. Uh, my wife and I, like, probably at least once a week, we, we will sit on the couch and, and can't peel ourselves off to go to bed, and so we'll just start trolling through some of these videos. And I've learned a lot of lessons from other people making a fool of themselves through these videos. I've learned that you should never jump off of a diving board into a frozen pool. I've learned that for sure. Um, I've learned from a, a gal, I think she was in Taiwan somewhere, and she was doing this corn on the cob challenge where you take a corn on the cob and you put it in a drill bit, and then you try to just eat it with your teeth. Well, she got her hair caught, and it was all bad. So you should always put your hair back in a ponytail if you're eating corn on a drill bit, which is a good lesson to learn for sure. Um, I've learned you should never dress up cats, or better yet, you should never own a cat. Hallelujah, that's a good one. Just some good advice here at church on a Sunday morning. Yeah, we've, we've learned a lot from other people's failures. And so as we've, uh, the last couple of weeks as we've looked at this journey, this narrative, uh, we've drawn from their failures to prevent us from making the same mistakes. And we've talked about a pillar in the wilderness, a fire and a cloud that led God's people and how we have a guide on the inside of us to lead us every single day called the Holy Spirit. Uh, We talked about the fact that we should be daily gatherers of his word. And just as they went out to get the manna, so we should go out every single morning and we should gather the word of God and we should be in prayer because he has what we need every single day. And then last week, uh, my wife preached an amazing message on the tree and the waters of Mara and how God can make the bitter things sweet in our life. And if you weren't here, I invite you to go back and listen to that message. It was amazing. Uh, But today, we are gonna join the Israelites on their journey in month three. We're gonna look forward to chapter 32 of the uh, book of Exodus. If you have your Bible, you can turn there now. But although this is quite a few chapters later than what we've been studying, it's not that far along on the chronological journey. The narrative is is still only in month three of this 40-year journey 
in the wilderness. And uh, let me give you a bit of a backdrop so that we're all on the same page before we jump in here. Uh, Moses brings the people to the foot of Mount Sinai, and this is a new location for them, but Moses has actually been here before. Mount Sinai was the place where God appeared to Moses in the burning tree. And yes, I said tree and not bush because you've been lied to all your life. The Hebrew word is in fact tree, not bush. So all the little felt graphs you saw in children's church growing up, it's a lie, Stephen. It's not the real thing, okay? So I'm telling you the truth today so you can understand. But there's a the burning tree and God appeared to Moses and said, go deliver my people. And so here they are again, month three of their journey at the base of this mountain. And Moses goes back up to the top where he talked to God before. And God begins to speak to him and says, Moses, I'm ready to cut covenant with my people. I'm ready to be their God. I'm ready to lead them. If they will obey me and they will follow me for all their days, I will provide for their needs and I will lead them from this point forward into the promised land. Go see if the people are interested in making a covenant with me. And so Moses goes back down the mountain and he tells the people what God said and the people are thumbs up. Yeah, sounds great. Let's go. Let's, we want to serve God. Let's, let's make this covenant. So Moses goes back up the, the mountain and he tells God, yeah, they're, they're all in. And God begins to give him the terms of this covenant, which we now know as the 10 commandments. He says, I'm the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods but me. Don't make for yourself any idol. Don't misuse the name of the Lord. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor mom and dad. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery. Don't envy. He gives them all these terms and then some ancillary terms to support those 10 commandments. And just before Moses is about to bail from the top of the mountain to go back down and tell the people what God said, God stops him and says, hey, just real quick, I need to repeat myself on one of those commandments which seems a bit odd in context of the story, but as we see, it was a foreshadowing of an event that was about to take place. He said, just so, we, just so you know, make sure that my people don't make any idols, okay? I wanna I want make sure that there's no gold or silver that's fashioned into an idol. I am the Lord alone. I am their God, no idols. We good? We got it, okay. So Moses goes back down the mountain and he tells the people what the 10 commandments were and gives them all the terms of the covenant. And they say, yeah, this sounds good. We're ready to serve God. So Moses says, all right, great. I'm gonna go back up the mountain. I'm gonna get it in writing now in 10 commandment form on the stones and you guys wait down here. A lot of cardio up and down the mountain for Moses. But he goes back up and he's there for a period of 40 days. And that's where we're gonna pick up the story here in Exodus chapter 32, verse one. It says, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come back down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, Moses' brother. Come on, they said, make us some gods who can lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us uh, here from the land of Egypt. And so Aaron said, take the rings from your ears of your wives and your sons and daughters and bring them to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and they brought them to Aaron. Then Aaron took the gold, he melted it down and he molded it into the shape of a cow. When the people saw it, they exclaimed, O Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron saw how excited the people were, so he built an altar in front of the calf and then he announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. The people got up early the next morning to sacrifice burnt offerings and peace offerings. And then after this, they celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. That is a G-rated version of what they were actually do doing. It was absolutely disgusting. The Lord said to Moses, quick, go back down the mountain. Your people whom you brought from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. That's an odd line to me, isn't it? God looks at Moses, he's like, hey, your people who you brought out of Egypt... I'm pretty sure that that's not what God said when they were in Egypt, right? When they were in Egypt, he told Moses to go tell Pharaoh, go tell Pharaoh that I want my people to be let go, okay? So now all of a sudden, God is disowning his people because they're doing some stuff he doesn't like. Any parents ever done that to your kids before? Come on, be honest in church today, all right? We've all been in that moment where your kid's acting sideways in the grocery store and the husband looks at the wife, he's like, hey, your kid over there, 
You need to handle your daughter. You need to handle your child, okay? She's like, yo, you participated in this process? That's your kid? No, my kid would never do that. That is your child. That's your DNA. That's your family coming out in that kid. So it's pretty much what God is doing here, all right? (laughs) That's so wrong. How quickly uh, they have turned away from the way I commanded them to live. They melted down gold and they made a cow and they've bowed down and sacrificed to it. They're saying, these are the gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I want to unpack that for the next couple of moments together. And if you're taking notes, I want to give you a title. And you know how much I love titling sermons. This one's going to be all kinds of fun. If you're taking notes, we're going to call it Don't Bow to the Cow. Don't Bow to the Cow. Come on, isn't that great? Aren't you glad you're part of a fun church today? Three of you are. Awesome. Okay, let's pray. and We're going to get into it. Jesus, we love you this morning. I thank you for your word. And I thank you that the promise of your word is that every time we go to it, every time we study it, every time we talk about it, it will not return void. It's like seed being scattered out in this room today, landing on hearts, waiting to produce a harvest. I pray this morning, as it says in Psalms chapter 119, that the entrance of your word would bring light to some people's lives this morning. As we, as we go to your word, if there's areas of our heart that need to be addressed, we give you permission right now to speak to us, to correct us, adjust us, convict us, whatever is necessary, because Lord, we want, we want our hearts to be for you and for you alone. We love you this morning. Speak to us in these next couple of moments in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Um, I did something this week that I know you're not supposed to do, uh, but I found myself doing it anyway. And that is, um, I was scrolling through some content on the internet and I decided to self-diagnose based on what I was reading. You ever done that before? Like you have a couple of symptoms, like a runny nose, a cough, and you go to WebMD and you type in all of your symptoms and like this laundry list of sicknesses comes down and God forbid you just assume that it's the common cold. We're all hypochondriacs when we look at that website and we just assume the worst, like, okay, cold, strep throat, no, uh, oh, rare Indonesian viral disease. Yeah, that's probably the one I have right there. I'm gonna get my affairs in order, give me my will, like, yeah. It was one of those moments for me, for sure. But I'm rather confident as I scrolled through this information that I diagnosed myself correctly. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized this is probably a condition that I don't suffer with alone, but something that probably much of our church suffers with. And so I'm gonna present a sickness to you. And you didn't know you were gonna come to church today and get a diagnosis, but that's exactly what's going to happen. Um, I discovered that after reading through the psychologist's and doctor's notes, I have a condition known as hurry sickness hurry sickness. And that is a real thing. I'm not making that up. Uh, I'll give you a definition for it and you can see if you identify with this. It says it's a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness, an overwhelming continual sense of urgency, a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. Anyone? Okay. So you're not quite sure. Let me help you out a little bit. There's a A lady named Rosemary Sword, she's a psychologist who studies this and has done a lot of the research. She gives a three-question diagnostic test and administers it to us online. I'm going to give it to you today. You can determine whether or not you have this condition. Question number one, do you survey and move from one checkout line to another at the grocery store based on the number of people that are in the line? Someone's thinking, yo, that's just wisdom, all right? That is not a condition. That's a good idea. (laughs) One of the greatest benefits of marriage is that when my wife and I go to the grocery store together, we stand in two separate lines, and then based on whoever gets there first, we just move the grocery cart over to the disdainful eyes of those behind us in line. Yeah, that's, that's why you get married. Come on. Number two, when you come to a stoplight, do you count the cars ahead of you and change, change lanes accordingly so that you can make sure you get through the light? 
okay? Uh, number three, do you multitask to the point where you forget one of the tasks that you're actually multitasking? And uh, I added a fourth because this one just ministered to me personally. Uh, do you have an Amazon Prime account, but you still manage to pay for same-day shipping occasionally? Yeah, if you have all those or yes to a couple of those questions, you might be suffering from the same condition, from hurry sickness. And there's a long list of side effects to this condition, some physical, some mental, some emotional, but say that some of the side effects include your mood, a poor outlook on life, the quality and consistency of your work, the robbing or destruction of meaningful relationships, a compromised immune system, a propensity towards addictive substances, and on and on it goes. But perhaps the most damaging side effect, the one that I wanna look into a little bit this morning, is that when you suffer from hurry sickness, it can cause you to make hastily foolish decisions, to move into something a little bit too fast without thinking of the consequences. Some of those decisions include impulsive purchasing, <laughs> serial dating, multiple divorces, constant moving job or residence, and the lesser diagnosed but all too prevalent condition that we're gonna unpack today, idol worship. Yeah, I know that seems like a bit of a stretch, right? We like went from impulsive purchasing to idol worship. But, but, but I think as we look at this story this morning, we're gonna notice that this ever-present condition, especially in a city like San Francisco where everybody's moving like crazy and everyone's trying to get ahead, that, that we might've made some decisions that have resulted in idolatry without our knowing it. If you follow back the Israelites here, we find out that as they come to this place at the foot of Mount Sinai, they are motivated. Their impetus behind this poor decision is based on this emotional state in their heart where they, they just start to get anxious and they can't, they can't figure out how to move from where they're at to where they need to go. The, the whole chapter starts out in verse, uh, chapter 32, verse one, by saying, when the people saw how long it was taking Moses to come down the mountain, they made some bad decisions. When they saw how long, in other words, when they got impatient, when they got anxious, when they said, you know what? I don't wanna be here anymore, I wanna be there, but God's not moving on my timetable, so I gotta get out of this place and I gotta move into what I want to move into myself. They got anxious. And just for the record, it was 40 days. We're not talking about some massive period of time here. We're talking about a pretty short window, six weeks, right? not, not, not a huge deal. I mean, for perspective. If today, when David told you all to turn to the person next to you and greet one another, if you were sitting here today and you're a good looking guy and you're sitting next to a good looking girl and you're both single and you met each other, and you're like, yo, I'm glad I came to church today. <laughs> At the end of the service, if you came up to me and both of you said, hey, you know, we're sitting next to each other in church and David told us to greet one another and we did and I'm pretty sure this is the one. 40 days from now, we're gonna get married. That's what we're gonna do. We'd like you to come be the officiant of our wedding. I'd be like, whoa, 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 hold on. Like, I don't have 40 days. That's not, are you sure? That's not a whole lot of time. But for 40 days, these guys sat at the base of a mountain and they made a life-changing decision, a life-altering decision. They're waiting for a covenant that they're gonna be receiving from God that they're gonna follow for the rest of their days. And they can't even wait 40 days for it. They just get anxious. And in their anxiousness, in their hurry sickness, if you will, they do what most of us do when we feel uncomfortable with our current situation, when we feel like God's not moving on our timetable and we need to get from where we're at to where we wanna be, they take matters into their own hands. They say, if God's not gonna fix this, I'm gonna fix it myself. I'm gonna make a way for me to get out of this and get to where I'm supposed to go. People do this all the time. 
single folks who have gotten sick and tired of waiting for God to bring the one. They're like, well, if God's not gonna bring my spouse, I'm gonna bring it. I'm gonna find that person. If I have to compromise my standards, if I have to compromise my purity, it does not matter. God's not moving on my timetable. I'm gonna take care of this one myself. People do it with their job. You know, well, God hasn't opened up the door for my, my, my job yet and I've been applying and nothing's happening and the only job that's come through is the one that's gonna rob me from community and take me out of the city, take me out of the house, take me out of the community with other believers. But you know what? If God's not gonna fix this situation, well, I'm gonna take matters into my own hand. I'm not ready to wait any longer. I'm gonna do this myself. If God doesn't do the miracle, if God doesn't do what I need him to do now, I will fix it. This is where so many people live. And so they come to Aaron and they say, well, God's not moving on our timetable. Aaron, we need you to fix this. So this dude, Moses, who was supposed to be leading us, we don't know where he went, he's gone. So I I need you to make us some gods. I need you to fashion for us some little statue to lead us from where we're at to where the one true God called us to go. This whole situation seems absolutely ironic to me because They're asking Aaron to to do something, forgetting the very God that they ate breakfast from that morning. There was manna on the floor that they ate that was provided by God. There was a cloud. There was a pillar of fire. Their enemies were killed in the waters of the Red Sea. God opened up an ocean for them to cross through. God is literally on Mount Sinai in the form of a, a flaming tower talking to Moses. And despite all the evidence, they say, we want you to make us a God to lead us from here to where God's called us to go. We're anxious. We're hurried, fix it. Their anxiety became the gateway to idolatry, as it so often does. And Aaron didn't know how to say no. He buckled under the pressure. So look what, look what he does. Chapter 30 verse, 32, verse two, it says, Aaron said, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them here to me. All the people took the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. And Aaron took the gold, melted it down, molded it into the shape of a cow. And when the people saw it, they exclaimed, Oh, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And they began to worship this golden cow. Now, I've said this before, and it warrants saying again. I think often in our pride and in our arrogance, we like to point our finger at the biblical characters and assume that we would never fall into the same trap. Like we, we like to think like, okay, really? Come on, after all God did? In the last two months, you've seen him move like that in your life. All the evidence that supports his, his loving you and his provision, like you're gonna just turn your back on God now? Like I would never do, I would never do that. But I wanna suggest to you today that all of us probably have. In one way or another, we probably have a few cows in our life. And although you might not have a golden image sitting on the shelf in your home, (laughs) that does not eliminate the possibility of idolatry. (laughs) The lengths at which I will go to for a sermon illustration, just know that I love you and I think about you all the time and this is what I'm willing to do for you, okay? Now, when we think of idols, this is what we think of. Well, maybe not this is what you think of, but we think of, you know, golden images sitting on shelves. But I think that's because we we don't have a completely comprehensive definition for idolatry. 
Let me offer you a definition that might bring a little bit more clarity to what an idol can or cannot be. An idol is anyone or anything that gets what only God deserves or becomes what only God can be. Anything that gets what only God deserves, your love, your devotion, your time, your resource, your affection, or becomes what only God can be, your savior, your identity, your security, your provision, Anything that falls into one of those two categories can be defined as an idol. If you were to take your Bible and you were to scroll through every page that talks about idolatry and highlight it, here's what you'd find. Every idol falls into one of those two categories. It gets what only God deserves or it becomes what only God can be. And so if that's true, if that is in fact a definition for idolatry, then we probably have a lot of these running around in our culture. There's a lot of cows out there. There's a lot of them. A job can be an idol. If it gets what only God should get, your time, your affection, the best of your life, or becomes what only God can be, your provider, your security, then that job has crossed over from being a career to being a God. A relationship can be an idol. Your money can be an idol. Your 401k, your real estate portfolio, go down the list. Your education or your social standing can be an idol. Your kids can be an idol. Your possessions can be an idol. Your body can be an idol. Your phone could be an idol. I will. That's what I'm doing. (laughs) What gets the first of your attention in the morning and the last of it before you go to bed? I'm just saying, there's a lot of stuff that can become an idol rather quickly in our culture if we're not careful. So let me ask you, to what cow are you bowing today? What gets the best of your affection, the best of your time? What gets the first of your resource? Look at what this author Tim Keller says in his book, Uh, Counterfeit Gods, a great book if you want to feel horrible about yourself. He says, an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it or be asked to give it away, your life should feel hardly worth living. Is there anything in your life that falls into that category? If God stripped it all away tomorrow, would you be able to say as Job did, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. It does not matter if I have plenty or if I have lack, I will still give all honor, all praise, all glory to God. Or have we found ourselves putting our trust, our hope, our emotion, building our foundations on something that will crumble, crumble, something other than the one true God? And let me offer you the greatest irony of idolatry. As we survey our hearts and just ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us about this this morning, here's the greatest irony of idolatry. Most of the time, our idols are fashioned from the very blessings that God gave us. There is no greater perversion of God's blessings than to turn his blessing into the thing that you worship over him. Let me show you what I mean. Aaron tells the people, he says, hey, um, I want you to go grab all your earrings, your gold earrings. I want you to bring them to me and I'm, we're, gonna, we're gonna fashion these earrings after we melt them down into the shape of a cow. That's what we're gonna do, all right? Everyone bring it. As I'm reading this, I have to ask myself this question. Where did they get all this gold? 
where did they get these earrings? Like we're talking about people who've been slaves for 430 years. These are not a wealthy folks that have disposable income to spend on things like earrings. These are slaves. So where did a group of two and a half million slaves get all of this gold to melt down and make an animal? Oh, that's right. They got it from Egypt. One of the very last things God does to prove his faithfulness to his people is he says, I'm gonna strip Egypt of their wealth. They're literally going to give it to you on the way out as a sign of my provision. And you're gonna take their gold, you're gonna take their silver, you're gonna take their clothing, and you're going to leave this place with all the blessings of Egypt in your hands. I stored up the wealth of the unrighteous for the godly. This is from me. So, so literally, these, these dangling things from their ears are a tangible sign of the blessing and the favor and the provision of God. And anyone in their right mind would look at the provision and the blessing and go, oh my gosh, thank you. I was going to melt it down and make a cow, but I'm reminded once again that you've been faithful, and so I honor you and I worship you because you provided this blessing for me in the first place. But what do they do? They melt it down and they use the very blessing as the idol that they worship. They worship the blessing instead of the blessor. Hey, you know that job you've got? That's a blessing from God. I know it doesn't feel like it sometimes, but that's a blessing from God. He gave that to you. It wasn't your acumen, your education, your resume, all of that stuff. Yeah, God used it to get it to you, but that was a blessing from him. He gave you that job. Please do not take that blessing and begin to worship the job more than you worship the one that gave it to you. Please don't give the best of your life and your affection and your time and your heart to a career while everything else gets sacrificed in the midst of it. Please do not sacrifice your family or your children on the altar of a job. That was God. He alone deserves your worship. If that career is sitting in a higher place of authority in your life, you might have one of these on your hands and we need to address it. And you know that paycheck that you get from that job that God gave you? That's a blessing from him as well. I know that it says your employer's name across the top of it, but your employer is nothing more than the pawn that God is using to get resources into your hand because he knows if he gets resources into the hand of a believer, it won't just go to them, but it will go through them. You are a part of a church today, as I shared just a moment ago, that doesn't just hoard to itself, but understands that God has blessed us so that we can be a blessing to other people. So please, if God has blessed you and you have a job, do not bow down before the idol of money as so many have in our culture and say, I worship you and I'm gonna give my life to you and I'm running for the next raise, I'm running for the next paycheck, I'm running for the next bonus. Forget God, forget his church, forget generosity. No, that is a mandate on every single believer's life. And if we are not being generous with what God has given us, if we are not serving him first with our money, then we have created a golden cow to worship. Please do not allow the blessing to become the idol that you worship. You know, you know those kids that you've got and that family, that wife, that husband that you have? They're a blessing too. The Bible says the kids are a blessing from the Lord. Blessed is the man who finds a good wife. There's nothing in there about a woman who finds a good husband. I'm hoping that's gonna be in there some point, but you know, <laughs> I'm sure it transfers somehow. <laughs> yeah, they're a blessing. But do you know that even your family can become an idol? Even your family can become something that you put in, into a place of priority above God. 
Jesus said, if you love your family and you love your wife, you love your kids more than me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. I must be first in your heart. Please do not take the blessing of your family and begin to worship the family over the God that gave them to you. Please do not allow your children's sleep schedule or their sports on the weekend or your spouse's wanderlust to keep you from the house of God and the community of God and the things of God. I'm sorry if this is getting personal, but we like to hide our idols and mask them and a lot of other things in our culture. And I am not willing to allow us to be a community that doesn't talk about the things we're worshiping over the one true God. We cannot afford to have this stuff in our life. I didn't share this in the first service, but can I tell you that even this church can become an idol for me? It can become the thing that I find my identity in. I find my security in. This can become the thing that I sacrifice as so many pastors have my family and my marriage on. And I've just come to this place where I've said, you know what? I will not give my life for something that Jesus already gave his life for. This is a blessing from God, but I'm going to worship him and not the blessing that he's given to me. We have to be keen on these in our lives. What cow are you bowing to this morning? What is taking your affection? What is taking your worship? What is taking your devotion? If it's anything other than God, then we need to deal with it. And here's how we're going to deal with it this morning. I'm going to give you two very simple thoughts. We're going to pull out of this text very short, but thoughts that I think will help you destroy the idols in our lives. Number one, you need to aggressively eliminate the idols, aggressively eliminate the idols. Uh, I want to look at what Moses does is he finds these people worshiping someone other than God or something other than God. After he descended the hill, it says in 32 verse 19, when Moses uh, came to the camp, he saw the cow and all the dancing and he burned with anger. He threw the stone tablets to the ground, smashing them at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and he burned it. Then he ground it into ground beef. I'm sorry, he ground it into powder. <laughs> He ground it into powder and he threw it into the water and he forced the people to drink it. Now, I, I, I understand how you feel when you read that. It seems like a really like petty retaliation, right? Like, well, you're going to make idols for yourself and you're going to eat them. All right. Well, that's what you're going to do. Like, it's like a parent disciplining their child. True story. I had, I had a friend in junior high who uh, he had a bit of a potty mouth and uh, his parents were constantly trying to get him to stop cussing. And uh, one day I was at his house and he said something he shouldn't have said in front of his mom. And his mom's like, well, that's it. And she goes over to the cabinet and she grabs a glass and she goes to the toilet and fills up the glass with toilet water. She's like, if you're going to be a potty mouth, then drink up. And I'm like, bravo. What a great way to discipline your children. I offer that to you as a parenting advice this morning. Take, take that home and use it as you will. <laughs> but, but Moses, he, he grinds, burns and grinds down this calf to powder and he scatters it on the water and he makes the people drink it. It seems like punishment, but what looks like a punishment is actually a blessing in disguise. Let me explain. Moses understood that if the people were to do what they would normally do with their gold like this, melt it back down, fashion it into some jewelry, distribute it again to everybody who gave their earrings to make the cow, that it was probably only a matter of time before they once again molded their jewelry into pick a new animal. It was only a matter of time before they began to worship the blessing instead of the one that gave it to them in the first place. So Moses said, this is defiled material and we need to find a way to get rid of it. So what does he do? He melts it down, grinds it into powder, scatters it on the water. And he says, guys, I need you to drink up. Why? 
Because if they drank it, if they took it into themselves, not to be too gross on a Sunday morning, but it would have to come out of them at some point. And when it came out of them, it was defiled and it was something that they could not use any longer. Moses understood that unless he utterly, pun intended, destroyed the cow, sorry, those are dumb jokes. <laughs> unless he utterly destroyed him, that it was only a matter of time before they went back. And so he needed to eliminate the idol once and for all. Now, I am not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that you should do exactly what he did with your idols, okay? If you just determined that your job or your kid was an idol, I'm not suggesting you light it on fire and, you know, grind it down to powder. And please don't, if, if you think for a moment that that's what I'm suggesting, we, I need to work on my sarcasm. But I am saying this, you need to aggressively eliminate idols from your life. If the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you over the last couple of moments about something, this is not a passive, hey, I'll try to ration a little bit more of my time out to God and give God a little bit more and then give my job. That, that's not what we're doing here. This is, an, this is an aggressive elimination. God is either first or he's not at all in our life. I am not asking you to shrink the idol down, make it a little bit smaller so that God gets a little bit more of your worship. You need to be the kind of Christian today that would say, you know what? I'm sick and tired of bowing down to this altar and I'm going to aggressively eliminate this thing. I am once and for all done with idolatry. God and God alone deserves my worship. God and God alone deserves my devotion. As for this cow, well, he's dead to me, all right? I'm getting rid of this sucker. That's how we have to treat our idols in this life. If not, then anything you've placed your trust in, anything that you try to negotiate with right now, it's gonna become the God you look to when things hit the fan. And hey, your job won't save you. Your paycheck won't save you. Your kids won't save you. Your spouse won't save you. Nothing else that you've worshiped will save you. Only Jesus can save today. Aggressively eliminate the idols. Number two, and I'll invite the band to come as we close with this. Number two, you need to look to the mountain. Look to the mountain. I know my wife told you last week to look to a tree. Today I'm telling you to look to the mountain. Uh, every week in these sermons, we've concluded the same way. We've talked about the fact that in all of these stories, in all uh, of the Old Testament, the Proverbs, the Psalms, all of it, there is a message of Jesus buried in there if we just look for it. That the entire Bible is about a single subject. It's about Jesus. And the same is true of this story with a golden cow. Just as Jesus was in the pillar of fire in the cloud, just as Jesus was in the manna, just as Jesus was in the tree at Mara, Jesus is in this story as well. And let me show you where we can find him. Moses, after he confronts the people in verse 30, it says, the next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a terrible sin, but I will go back up to the Lord on the mountain. Perhaps I will be able to obtain forgiveness for your sin. Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, what a terrible sin these people have committed. They've made gods of gold for themselves, but now if you'll only forgive their sin, but if not, erase my name from the record that you have written. Among the two and a half million people gathered at the foot of Sinai, there was only one person who had not bowed to the idol. There was only one person who had not sinned. It was Moses. Where was Moses? Well, Moses was in the presence of God. He was in the presence of the Father while the people were sinning. But Moses descended from the presence of God 
and he came down to the people to confront them about where they were living. And once they were confronted, he said, I know that you've blown it. This is a problem, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back up on the hill. The sinless one will go back up onto the hill and I will plead to God on your behalf. I'll ask if he can forgive you. But if he doesn't, if this sin is too grave, then here's what I'm willing to do. I will offer myself up in exchange for your sin. I, I, the sinless one, will take upon myself the punishment that you deserve so that you can be forgiven. There's Jesus. There's the gospel. For Jesus left heaven and he came to dwell among creation, among a sinful people to confront us about where we were living. And when he determined that we'd blown it, there was no way we could make ourselves right with God, what did he do? He went back up the mountain and he offered himself up on a cross on a mountain called Golgotha. And he said, even though your righteousness doesn't add up, mine does. I'm the sinless one. Everything you've partaken in, I never have. And the only sacrifice that's sufficient is a sinless one. And I will give my life in exchange for yours. For every idol you'll bow down to, past, present, future, I'm laying my life down. And although you deserve judgment, I will take judgment upon myself so that you can receive the grace, the forgiveness, the goodness of God. You will get what I deserved and I will take what you deserved upon myself. And now he doesn't just hang out at the top of a mountain called Golgotha, but he literally sits in the presence of God once again at the right hand of the Father. And he intercedes for your life and for my life so that every time you make a mistake and every time you bow your knee to another idol, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Remember my sacrifice in the midst of their sin. And in that moment, you are washed and you are cleansed and you are made righteous once again because of the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus. Oh, come on. Are you grateful this morning for a God that came from heaven to earth. Come on, we should give him all the glory and all the worship and all the adoration for what he's done. He's good today. That's Jesus. So what do you do? Eliminate the idols in your life, please. Don't play the game. Don't buy into the lie of our culture that certain things that sit on the throne of our heart have the right to stay there. Aggressively dethrone anything in your heart that's taking God's place. If it's your job, adjust your schedule. If it's your relationship, have the right conversation. If it's your money, start giving. If it's your physical appearance in your body, maybe don't work out for a couple days. Eat a few pieces of cake just to prove to yourself, come on, that it does not matter as much as God does. That's your homework. Whatever you need to do, do it. Aggressively get rid of the idols in your life. But in the midst of it, do not buy into guilt and shame and say, oh, I did it again. Look to the mountain and remember Jesus. Because in that moment, you'll remember, you know what? He already paid the price. He already paid the price. And I've been set free in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.